Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast, discussing and debating the iconic and the forgotten of 80s and 90s pop culture with your co-hosts, James D. Graves and Jason Colvin. All right. Welcome, everybody. We are here for our Synchronicity versus Frontiers episode. I'm so excited about this episode. I've been looking at these bands. Getting back to revisit them is going to be awesome. Jason, are you are you all right? Are you there? Yeah, dude, I'm sorry. I, I'm still I'm still trying to figure out who the biggest a-hole out of these three guys is. <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell uh, yeah. which one it is or if it's all three. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. The three guys in the police, it, it's a struggle because obviously none of them could get along. <laughs> and i've had that same struggle man i've i really have i'm i can't tell okay i go back and forth i'm gonna be curious to who you land on right that'll be another that'll be a separate decision making part of this i guess when <laughs> <laughs> judge make the judgment of who the a-hole is <laughs> this is okay, going to be so- interesting because you and i have talked off air but you and i we don't really have a relationship Prior to the study that we do for the podcast, we didn't really have a relationship with either one of these albums. No, this was my older brother's album for sure. And he's eight years older than I am. So this album came out in 83. He would have been just driving around this time. So he's going to be jamming out to this one all the time. I know that we had the LP. I'm pretty confident that he also had the tape. And so as a new driver with a new car and a tape deck in it, I know that he listened to this a lot. But it's interesting. You know, we'll get into the songs a little bit later. But I, I had to ask him about listening to it. I was like... Did you really ever listen to the first side of this <laughs> album? Did you listen to the A side? He was like, Yeah, I listen to it all the time. I'm like, okay. Because going back, I have some struggling with a lot of the first half of the album. So Okay, it, see, I'm gonna give a shout out to a good friend of mine named Melissa Mingle. I was talking to her about this. I said, Did you have synchronicity? She's like, Oh, of course. I said, Did you listen to the entire album or just the hits? She's like, No, I love the whole album. I'm like, What'd you think of the song Mother? <laughs> She's like, mother, mm. she couldn't really place it. Uh-huh. She texted me later after that discussion. She's like, I can't believe I missed that <laughs> show. So It was a show for sure. <laughs> I don't want to, you know, we'll get into what we think about these songs individually. But yeah. before we do, yes, this is Synchronicity by The Police versus yeah. Frontiers by Journey, two of the yeah. biggest albums of 1983. Right. Both released in 1983. One of them, the Synchronicity has the defining song for the police. Frontiers has the my favorite song from Journey on it. So it'll be an interesting matchup. Not not Journey's biggest hit of all, not their right. defining song probably, but certainly one that's right up there close to the top. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Before we even get started, I mean, I thoroughly enjoy what we do for our podcast, but taking a deep dive into two albums that I didn't really have a relationship with has been a lot of fun. I'm anxious to get into what we think. Absolutely. Yeah, the two albums that we're going through, I've probably listened to at least a dozen times each since we came up with this idea. It's going to be fun. I'm I'm excited to do it. Rocks! So normally I would like tell a story about what I was doing in 1983, but in 1983 I was in second grade and beyond having the Michael Jackson experience with Motown (laughs) and the glove, I don't remember anything else about that year. Do you have you have any recollection of 1983? What you what you had going on? Well, I can tell you the biggest thing that happened in my life in 1983 was 
Return of the Jedi came out. Oh, yeah. That is the first Star Wars movie that I remember seeing in the theater. Okay. I have no recollection of seeing the other movies for the first time. I've got no memory of, oh, my gosh, Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's dad. Like, it was just somehow that's always been in my memory banks. So I, it was, you sorry for the spoiler that. alert for anybody out there who has <laughs> seen Strikes Back. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what? man. Dang, I was going to watch that tonight. You missed it. <laughs> 40 years too late and i've been waiting for 40 years to watch that movie oh my gosh you missed one of the great movie watching experiences of all time man yeah, i mean I, it rocked my world and then i had to live with it for three years you know yeah like what what's gonna happen right i know we would talk That's about crazy. it on the playground do you think yeah. no way there's no way possible it's not real he was lying <laughs> he'd be lying that's right he's a bad um, guy of course he was lying so yeah, 1983. I mean, I remember. See, here's here's what I remember about 1983. Okay. Okay. Yeah. We talked. We talked a little bit about Pyromania. First real experience with rock music. Return of the Jedi came out in '83. That summer, Octopussy and Never Say Never Again. He had two James Bond movies in the theater at the same time. Right. About Trading that. places. Right. Trading places. That's uh, my memory. War that's games. The, that's there you the go. Memory from the year. Yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> the first year of boobies. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> it. Okay, we can move on now. Congratulations. <laughs> the year D became a man. So in 1983, these two albums were released, Synchronicity by The Police and Frontiers by Journey. Today, we're going to talk about Synchronicity. Next episode, we will be talking about Frontiers. As far as my relationship with this album, I knew, everybody knew Every Breath You Take. I mean, I was familiar with King of Pain and some others. Of course, I say it every musical episode that we have, I say this, but MTV. Mm -hmm. If it was not for MTV, this album may not have been the album that it was. The fact that Every Breath You Take was maybe their first song that became what they called a heavy rotation song definitely sealed the deal. Just to talk about the history of the band, you know, you got three guys who come from very different backgrounds. A couple of guys from England, one guy from the States who actually grew up in the Middle East. He's, he's got a real, really neat history all to himself, but it is Sting, whose given name is Gordon Sumner. Gordon Sumner. School teacher. Does he, does he become the hero that he is? Does he become the rock god that he is <laughs> if his name is Gordon? No way. <laughs> Sting is a super cool name. Gordon Sumner, way yes. low on the cool meter. Yeah, it's the English teacher that you don't want to go sit in his class. <laughs> I'll start with Andy Summers. Okay, so Andy Summers was the oldest member of the band, and he had had a significant musical career before he ever started with the police. He started playing piano when he was six. He got his first guitar when he was 11. By the time he was 16, he was playing in jazz clubs. And pretty quickly, he met up with this guy called Zoot Money. And it was this kind of jazzy rock, you know, classic... 50s style rock that they were doing in the 60s, but they were playing, you know, they would share the stage with bands like Pink Floyd, Cream, Jimi Hendrix. He was making it big in the 60s when these other guys were just still kids in school, really. He and Zoot Money eventually formed a separate band. The band that they were in split up and he and Zoot Money started doing lots of 
drugs together. And so they formed the psychedelic rock band called Detalian's Chariot. And so he moved out to the States and they tried to do their psychedelic rock thing, but eventually that fell apart. And then he started playing guitar with kind of the second rendering of the animals. I'm sure you know the animals. They had the House of the Rising Sun and very a whole lot of other hits. Right. But his connection with the with that band lasted for one album and then it just kind of all fell apart. And pretty quickly, he found himself unemployed, giving guitar lessons for next to nothing. And then he got arrested for drug possession, and he thought his life was over. And then he meets his future wife, Kate. And he's like, wait a minute, I'm going to change my life around. Everything's going to be great. They get married. They go back to London. But by this time, he's he's nearly 30. He's 29 years old. And so for being a rock star, that's over the hill, right? Yeah. It's yeah. like getting in the NBA at 35, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> and he happens upon this other band. And then just because he happens to be playing the local clubs, whenever Rolling Stones start looking for guitarists, he's on the list with like Eric Clapton as a possible new guitar player for the Stones, which is pretty amazing. But of course, he didn't make it. Otherwise, we'd be talking about That's right. the Rolling Stones, right? And then he gets invited to play as kind of the lead guitar on this orchestral piece called Tubular Bells by the Newcastle Orchestra. And there's a couple of other session musicians there, a bass player by the name of Sting and a drummer by the name of Stuart Copeland. Sting's band was called Last Exit. Stuart Copeland's band was called Curved Air. And they happened to do another thing together, just a session band for this one-off show in Paris. Again, they meet up. And at this time, Stuart Copeland has put together a punk band. Yeah, this is interesting. This is 1977 when punk is, is going through the roof. And Stuart Copeland says to himself, man, these guys are talentless. They don't really know how to play their instruments. We don't need all these other people involved we just need a singer and a, a guitar player you know a drummer and a bass player and that's it that's all we need and we don't need to know how to play right <laughs> everybody was going to see shows by musicians who screamed didn't sing and didn't know but three chords and barely knew how to play those and somebody who just hit the drums hard you know Stuart was kind of the the head of the band initially he listened to last exit he contacted sting invited sting to play with him yeah. they right. had a different guitar player who's actually yeah. a punk guitar player henry padovani right well he he really wasn't anything he just knew all the right people like he knew all the punk bands and so as sting is on his way over Stuart copeland shows henry padovani how to play the three chords that he's going to need to know how to play to be a punk <laughs> band and as manages to fool sting for at least a little bit in order to get him to agree to sign up to be in this punk band and they go out and play and they're doing awful punk, but people can kind of realize, hey, these guys actually, a couple of them seem to really know what they're doing. And that guy can actually sing a little bit. When they first started, Henry Padovani, he he was rubbish. And yeah. Stuart and Sting just pretended to be rubbish. <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> right. They would follow bands that knew four chords and they would be a band that knew 400 chords. They were trying to capitalize on that punk movement. Which is crazy because they don't sound punk at all. Oh, no. No, no, no. I mean, the farthest from it. Eventually, you know, they, I don't know what honestly possessed Stuart to to try to get in contact with Andy Summers, the guitar player, and say, hey, we, we'd like you to join the band with us. Obviously, they'd had these two sessions. They saw that he was a talented musician, but 
but why do that? I think maybe they were looking for a future beyond punk, I guess. I don't know. But after just a couple of shows playing together as a foursome, Andy Summers simply said, I'm not going to play with this other guitarist. Just it's not going to happen. You're right. So he was ready to be out of the band. He's thinking things over. He's on this train and he gets off the train. And at the same time that he gets off the train, Stuart Copeland gets off another car on the train and they laugh about the fact that they've, you know, coincidentally met each other and they have this intense conversation. And then they call up Henry and say, sorry, buddy, you're no longer in the band. And he was okay with that. He has this very French attitude about the whole thing. It's like, who cares? You know, whatever it is, what it is, you know, whatever. But he I, I never on. really, I never really buy it when people say that. Like, yeah, I was originally in Van Halen, but I got out before they made a bazillion dollars. <laughs> but that's okay. It's no big deal to me. But he actually, he went to become a guitarist for Wayne Country and the Electric Chairs, who at the time that it happened, were a better known band than the police was. It's funny because the guy who didn't know how to play anything got to be in the better band at the time. Next up on the countdown, <laughs> F.U. by Wayne Country and the Electric Chairs. <laughs> I think it's interesting in the early days when they finally get the threesome together, they start playing clubs around London. Yeah. And there's like six people in the audience, and including the guy's wives and girlfriends. <laughs> right. They were like, right. they were a nothing band. Andy's been all over, you know, he's been in the UK, he's been in the US, and now he's back, you know, scrounging and he's with this band and going in and playing these punk clubs. And the punk audience, for lack of a better word, are punks. <laughs> and so they had, there was this trend that started where they would spit on the musicians like i think it started with just you know spitting their beer on them but then it just turned into spit like they just hawk loogies at the band and andy was just like you know what i was tired of getting spit on i yeah. did not want to do this anymore i don't blame him at all we talked a little bit about this in our nirvana pearl jam episode if you yeah. haven't listened to that go back to the archives and listen to that but people acting crazy punching people spitting up that's not my scene at all i don't blame him one bit for that i can handle a mosh pit I, if somebody spits on me they're gonna get a fist in the face <laughs> <laughs> so yeah they start doing better music and then Stuart copeland comes in one day and he's bleached his hair blonde and they're like what in the world did you do and then within a week, Sting and Andy had both done the same thing. And so it, it, weird, it was weird. It was kind of like the makeup for Kiss. It gave them this identity. You know, they're the they're the blonde trio over here, the bleach blonde trio. And Stewart's brother, who is their manager, says, well, we got to get you to the States. When they go over to the States, they play a club in New York City. And it's like craziness. Like New York City loves them. And they sort of bounce around this little three-week mini tour on the Northeast and they do really well in the States. Andy Summers' wife was in labor back in London, getting ready yeah. to have his daughter. Yeah. And he calls her and he says, I can't be there. He goes, there's a thousand people here. Yeah. And they had just been playing in front of six or seven or 10 back in London. It's so crazy to think about all of these bands that we talk about started at one place and then end up being megastars. And it's for a lot of them, a really quick turnaround. And obviously the States tour did a whole lot for the police. But like before this, there was a time where Sting didn't have a place to stay sometimes. And so he spent the night with Andy and Kate, his wife, while Kate was pregnant. And Andy says, I can still remember us drifting off to sleep, listening to Sting play this little ditty on his acoustic guitar that he had just come up with that night, singing, Roxanne. <laughs> 
And who would have known that it turned out to be the way that it was? You know, Bob Garcia was the guy who was in charge at that point. He was listening to the song and his dog started howling at the sound of the song. Right. And he says, so at that moment, I knew that it was a hit. As it turns out, he was wrong. They released that single. It didn't do very well until they had that United States tour. And then they re-released it the next year and it made them the name that they are. So after Roxanne had become the success, they, they sat down, they had the band meeting that, you know, Van, that, that David Lee Roth hated. <laughs> but these guys, these guys were all smart, driven guys. And so they sat down and they said, listen, we are no longer going to be chasing the moment. We're no longer going to be pretending to be a punk band or pre pretending to be a whatever style of the band is today. We are going to be the one that makes the moment. And man, I got I to gotta say, that's what they did before and since. I can't think of a single band that I would say, oh, these guys sound like the police. No, they are a unique band all on their own. It's, yeah, I'm with you. Sting's voice really sets them apart. He has one of the most unique voices in the 1980s, for sure. Oh, yeah. All right, so, man, you're going to have to help me with these titles. I don't even know how to pronounce these. Okay, yeah. So we have a lot of very unique album titles, and, and forgive us for, for messing them up, but Sting was a very well-read guy who wasn't af afraid of being pretty esoteric in his lyrics and his album titles. Right. So their first album was Outlandos D'Amour. And that's the one that had Roxanne. Right. And then they had Regatta del Blanc. Okay, you may remember that for like Message in a Bottle, Walking on the Moon. Next two albums, you've got Zenyatta Mandata, which I mentioned long ago, came out on my birthday in 1980. That's right. Don't Stand So Close to Me. Do, 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 da, 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 da. <laughs> right? Right, right. And then in 1981, you had Ghost in the Machine. Okay, so Ghost in the Machine is really when I kind of pick them up. That's Spirits in the Material World. And the big hit on that one was Every Little Thing She Does is Magic. So Ghost in the Machine was a book by Arthur Kostler, who also wrote The Roots of Coincidence, which is about synchronicity. A, a psychologist slash philosopher who wrote a couple books that inspired Sting enough to name his albums. So they do their U.S. tour and then they do a world tour. And by world tour, I mean literally world tour. They're going to Egypt. They're going to India. They're going to places that no other bands are going to. And so they're gone for months on end. And Andy's got this, you know, new baby daughter at home and wife at home. And after the tour, you know, you would expect, hey, go home and see my wife and kids. But he decides to spend another three weeks in Bali with Stuart, and as it happens, John Belushi is staying at Bali at the same time. And they <laughs> they immediately hit it off. They're like, "Oh, hey, these this guy's hilarious," and he's he's like, "Yeah, I'm hilarious." <laughs> <laughs> wow, and, I have not heard this story. Yeah, and then they find this restaurant in Bali that serves omelets with mushrooms, magic mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. That's so, a very John Belushi thing to, to order off the menu, right? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he must have been the guy that introduced him to this place. <laughs> so so needless to say, things weren't going very well by the time Andy got back home. <laughs> <laughs> All 
after doing the U.S. tour, doing the world tour, it's safe to say that the relationship among the band members was getting pretty strained. I'd like to advertise for a new band. Yeah, they, they had this sort of brotherly-like relationship. They couldn't yeah. ever compromise, right? Right. So there's three very strong-willed, very capable musicians, and every single thing has to be perfect, but it has to be that guy's version of perfect. Well, no, it's right. my version of perfect. Right. They would come to blows. They would come to, I mean, fisticuffs. Right. And, you know, we talked about trying to figure out who the a-hole was at the beginning of this. Right. From what I can gather, Stuart was very aggressive. And Sting was passive aggressive. Yep. And Andy was kind of the mediator between the two of them. But he had his, uh, you know, he'd stick his heels in frequently as well. So yeah, you've got you got guys who are all very talented, very intelligent, who are all driven, who all have their own idea about the way things go. And I mean, you pointed out to me like Stewart's got to be thinking, you know, what's with Sting writing all the songs? This is my band. I formed this band. And then Andy's got to be thinking, what is with these guys? I'm the guy who has, you know, another decade worth of experience over them. I'm the guy that's played with other bands. I'm the guy who's, you know, a, the probably the best musician in the band and then of course sting is thinking i'm the guy who writes all of the hits everybody had a reason to dig their heels in and claim leadership role in the in the band right and so it kind of became a thing like there's a great interview with martha quinn after one of their shows and they keep bickering back and forth as she's trying to ask questions and she's finally like so do you guys mind just answering just some of my questions for the moment i want to have a fight yeah. Much better television than your questions. I promise you. Okay. I tell you what, should we film me whooping Sting? Yes. That would be good, wouldn't that it? Would be great. How about it? You want to see me beat up Sting? And then Sting throws his drink in Stuart's face and they take off. Like it's Sting, on, man. Sting's running and Stuart's chasing <laughs> him, ready to whoop some A. It really was <laughs> legit, too. Drink in the face. <laughs> I'm getting out of here. Stuart's knocking over the table. Martha Quinn is just like, what is going on right here? Yeah. She's like, Okay, I guess we're done. She was not happy. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, they had a tough relationship. They, these guys were like brothers, and a lot of times they couldn't stand each other. So they get together for their fifth album, right? And without hesitation, they are at the very top of the game. They are regarded as the best band in the world mm -hmm. at this moment that they get together for their fifth album. And... In recording the album, they go to the most beautiful place in the Caribbean that you could go to. I mean, it's just, how perfect could it be? But what happens? <laughs> so, yeah, I, I heard Stuart Copeland talking about this. So they're at Montserrat. This is an island in the Caribbean. This is the same place that they recorded Ghost in the Machine. Same producer, Hugh Padgham. Yep. He said every day they'd wake up in their little bungalows, and they'd see the water, and they'd see the beach, and it would be beautiful. And he said you'd just be whistling this happy tune on your way to the studio and then by the time you got to the studio this black cloud came over and you want to kill everybody while you're there i don't know if you know this or not sting wrote a lot of the songs for this album in jamaica at goldeneye where ian fleming wrote most of the james bond novels yes he wrote he sat down and wrote at ian fleming's desk wrote every breath you take every breath you take was written at the same desk that the spy who loved me was written <laughs> that's crazy how about that, that is crazy so they end up being in 
separate rooms. And Pajam said, well, we wanted to put them in the place that gave them the best sound for each of their instruments and also so that they wouldn't kill each other. And also for social reasons. <laughs> it's for social reasons. They had social distancing. There's some social distancing going on back in 1983. <laughs> so they had, they had Stuart Copeland in the living room. They had Sting in the recording booth and Andy Summers that was the only one that was actually inside the studio itself. It's crazy. They gathered in December of 1982 to record this album, which would be released June 1st, 1983. And as you mentioned, Sting came with almost all of his songs already demoed out. We need to talk about that because that is a big deal. Sting shows up with like 10 songs, perfectly produced, ready to go. Yeah. Like, hey guys, check this out. It's completely done. I don't need your help on any of this. And it's right. Every Breath You Take, and it's King of Pain, and it's Synchronicity 2. I can see where these guys would be like, that song's really good, but that's not me. And and Stuart made the comment. He's like, it was a great song. I just needed to make my mark on it, and Sting wouldn't let me, and that became World War Three. I mean, I can to... see where that would be irritating, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, okay. I'll go ahead and give – I'll disclose. I'll disclose my judgment. I watched – Stuart Copeland's documentary. I watched Andy Summers' documentary. I didn't watch the Sting documentary, but I'm pretty familiar with Sting. When I started, I had in my head that Andy Summers was probably the jerk. After doing the research that I have, I got to say Andy Summers is probably the guy that was maybe the little bit of the dork, but the guy that tried to, to, to make peace between the other two guys most of the time. I think Sting tried to be polite, but firm about what he wanted and rightly so because he's the guy that's writing all of their hit songs and i think stuart copeland was being a pouty little brat that's my i'm, I'm calling stuart copeland the, the a-hole sorry stuart if you happen to be listening in i haven't met you it's not appropriate for me to say these things about you but i'm just going by what i've seen i can't argue with that assessment although i think all three of them had their turn as captain a-hole <laughs> right Right. But when you've got, I mean, if you're playing a flag football game in the backyard and Joe Montana shows up and you're the quarterback, yeah. you've got to move over for Joe Montana, right. right? Hand Joe Montana the ball. And if he happens to pass it to you, feel lucky that you got to get the ball passed to you by Joe Montana in your own yard. Yeah. And it, that was hard for guys like Stuart Copeland, who is a super talented drummer, but he's just not a great singer, a great, great songwriter. And that's not. Right. Any knock well, on him is just not he's not a pop songwriter. I mean, Sting had a pop song sensibility that he didn't have and that Andy Summers kind of had. But I mean, he went on he went on to score movies. So did Andy Summers. He scored some movies as well. They both are extremely talented musicians, just they don't have that special little thing that draws people into the music. Right. They don't have the hook. Are you ready to start, start talking about synchronicity? Let's let's jump in song by song, track by track. Let's break it down. I want to know what you think. Okay. So the album itself is called Synchronicity. It's based on a concept where you have two seemingly unrelated events, which somehow are meaningful to each other. Can you explain that any more than... Well, okay. Yes, I will explain it more when we talk about Synchronicity 2 here in just a little bit, okay? Yeah, I think I, think I know where you're going with this. Cool. As I mentioned before, it's based on this book called The Roots of Coincidence, which it says, hey, science, you should be paying attention to things that are unexplained, like 
paranormal phenomenon, supernatural type of things. These things don't happen very often, but they happen. And it's something you need to be aware of. And a lot of people wrote it off, but obviously it had a, a strong impact on Sting because you've got two different songs named for the concept on the album. The album itself nominated for five Grammys, won yeah. three. Yeah. Musically, it does this amazing, like I said, you will not find a band. I mean, if you do, tell me about it. I'd love to hear a band that, that I go, oh, wow, these guys are as good as the police. Now, they did something where they merged genres of music that nobody had ever put together before. And they didn't, and you know, like they're kind of known for this reggae sound, but this album, they kind of left the reggae behind. I mean, it's you get an inkling there, but most of the reggae Not very is much, on, yeah. on their first four. Yeah, this this is much different. And I can't say jazzy. I can't say world music. It's just, it's a mix of stuff that's amazing. And they did all that and also achieved that sonic sound that we talked about with Thriller and with Hysteria, where the music is crisp and you feel each of the instruments. It's not muted and foggy, like is the word that I always think of. It's more produced. We've talked about the producers before. And this one's definitely more produced and has more synthesizers in it. But it's still, obviously, with these guys being the musicians that they are, there's nothing fake about the production on this album. This album knocked Thriller out of the number one spot for a little while. Yeah, kept it out for eight weeks. And then Thriller reclaimed its spot, but still, right. to sell more albums than Thriller in 1983, that's pretty daggum good. Right. As we said before, produced by Hugh Padgham, who he is the guy that came up with the gated reverb drum sound that we all know from In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins. Oh, wow. Nice. Yeah, so not bad. I mean, I mean, if you're going to have a guy produce your album, that guy would probably be a good one. <laughs> but obviously he produced stuff for Genesis, produced stuff for Sting and several other big bands. But he almost walked out. Like it, it got to the point that they were fighting so much that he just, he about said, I'm done. He made the call. I mean, he said, I need to get out of here. And they're like, no, give us more time. All right. So let's dive in. Are you ready? Okay, so this concept of synchronicity comes out in this first song, which is almost like a description of the concept in the lyrics. And I'll just, I'll say it. A connecting principle linked to the invisible, almost imperceptible, something inexpressible, science unsusceptible, logic so inflexible, casually connectable, nothing is invincible. So it's, it is two things that happen that seem to be completely unrelated to each other, but somehow are symbolically connected. Yeah, this song is high intensity. It's kind of a good rocker. Mm -hmm. Rapid synthesizers at the beginning for the time and place in 1983. This perfectly fits that time and era. You know what? I'm going to go ahead. I'll be completely honest with our listeners. When I sat down and started listening to this album, I listened to the first four songs and I called you up and I said, okay, I don't think I can defend this album. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, the first songs in the album are an acquired taste, right? I mean, if you, if you like stinky cheese, if you like homebrew beer or, or fine wines, that's something that you probably didn't enjoy the very first taste that you had of it. But it's something that after you did it for a little while, you're like, oh, I'm, I'm catching the nuances and the subtleties and all the wonderfulness of about this so 
yeah. So after listening to it now a dozen more times, I can say Synchronicity 1 is good. And I, I enjoy actually all of the songs almost on this first side. <laughs> I enjoyed Synchronicity 1 too. This was the top of their set list for the Synchronicity Tour. Sure. Yeah. And it's a great one to get the audience hyped up. Like you said, it's got that exciting, upbeat tempo. Okay. We both like Synchronicity 1. Yes. So the next song is called Walking in Your Footsteps. And this one is, again, it, this is one that I listen to and I'm like, eh. And then I listen to it a few more times. I'm like, okay, this is good. This is all right. And it's it's almost like a kid song. Did, have you looked at the lyrics of this? Yeah, it's talking about dinosaurs and <laughs> Mr. Brontosaurus. And... <laughs> Thought of all that you could see, just a little bit like me. Here's yeah. what I think about this song, okay? okay go it's ahead. funny that you say that because this song sounds like what they would play in the little people carrier at Disney World or Animal Planet <laughs> when you're riding the safari ride or something like that. You know what I mean? Mr. Brontosaurus. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yes. Yeah, so it, it is very is very much a kids song, but then it goes on to talk about the atom bomb. So right. it's kind of this larger meaning of mankind <laughs> bringing about its own extinction. You know, just like the dinosaurs were the rulers of the world at one point, and they're gone. So it looks like our fate is the same. So I, I like it. It's 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 kid lyrics with a big heavy meaning. How sting is that? I think you nailed it. I think you nailed it. I think it's a good song. It's kind of singable. It sounds a little bit international, maybe a little African. Definitely belongs at Epcot or Animal Planet, <laughs> but uh, it's good. It's good. I like yeah. it. All right. So our next song is the OMG song. <laughs> oh my God! For this song, oh my God, it's it's jazzy. There's yeah. there's a lot of horns. And this song actually dates back to Sting's days with his band Last Exit. It sounds like it belongs in a coffee shop to me. I don't know. It's not really my style. I, I didn't really care for it. What, what do you think about this one? Yeah, it, this is, again, another one that I can listen to eat more easily now after her, having heard it a few times. But I, it took me, it took me a few times before I even caught that the last lyrics are a throwback. Do you know this? No. So the lyrics of this song have to do with somebody who's kind of struggling with God and their distance from God, which I, I mean, I don't, I don't know anybody who hasn't struggled with that issue as well. This one's maybe a little bit more bitter as it's going through this struggle. But then the, at the end of the song, the last lyrics are... the song no every little thing she does is magic oh my gosh are you serious that's cool yes yeah so he throws back to his own song in this one but instead of being about a girl, it's now about God. So ah, it's it's heavy. It's I mean it's it's heavy religious struggle, spirituality struggle that Sting's dealing with apparently. But yeah, I, I'm kind of with you. It's it's okay. It's okay at this point. But it's not certainly not a favorite on the album. 
All right. This is one I've been wanting to discuss with you. <laughs> okay, okay, the next song is called Mother. D, your thoughts. Okay, that is enough of that. <laughs> I tried so many times to listen to this. I'm just like, oh. It's so freaking weird, man. Oh my gosh, it is it is it's not just weird, it's not good. I'm just saying it is flat out bad. And if you got folks, if you got if you if you're somebody out there who loves this song, let us know and let us know Seriously. what it feels to you about the song. But this is instead of Carl Jung, we're talking about Sigmund Freud here. This, this <laughs> talking about all his girlfriends turning into his mother and his mother's always calling him. This one was written by Andy Summers, and he's he said he, he was considered to be the golden child of the family by his mom, and she put a lot of pressure on him. And when he made it big with the police, she was constantly calling him and living through him vicariously. And this was a song about that. And so maybe it's maybe it's appropriate that the Freudian song be shouted out. I, it's terrible. This song, okay, this is what I think. This is a song that would be effective. You remember at the very end of Silence of the Lambs when Clarice is walking <laughs> around looking for Buffalo Bill in the dark and all those moths are flying around? That's oh the type gosh. of song in the background that would be extra scary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not a pleasant song to listen to. It just makes you uncomfortable in all respects. And was it you that told me that Sting's not singing on this? Sting said, no friggin' way I'm singing that stupid song. <laughs> you know what, though? He was on the song. He played yeah. the oboe. <laughs> yeah. Not enough well, to save it. Oh, no. No, no, no. This one, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the, for the mother fans out there, but this is, unless you're talking Danzig, this is not a song I want to listen to. Hey, here's the other thing, and I don't want to be cruel here to Andy Summers, who's a yeah. super gifted musician. Right. But they each brought songs to the table. Uh -huh. Hey guys, this song, this is the one I want. Okay. Hey, I've got these three or four. This, this was the best he could come up with. I mean, <laughs> terrible. Well, and, and, it's a and nightmare. It is a nightmare. And just to be fair to Andy Summers, like he's not always wrong in what he thinks is good. Like there was another song that he wrote called Behind the Camel that Sting hated, refused to sing on it. And there's no words to it. And he won the Grammy for best instrumental song that year for this Behind the Camel song. So he, who knows from good taste, you know, sometimes people think something's terrible and it turns out to be good. And sometimes people think something's good and it turns out to be mother. That's right. That's right. Okay. So that was Andy Summers only offering for this album. Well, yeah, he co-wrote, I mean, uh, you know, he co-wrote with Sting on, on, a, on another one, but, but okay. yes, the mother was his baby. What a weird <laughs> thing to say. All right. <laughs> All right. I, I did read that. Uh, I read some stuff on the internet that there are a lot of people out there that feel like this song keeps this album from being considered a masterpiece yeah that's this is this is still a masterpiece that's not yeah anyway so moving on we've that's andy summers andy got one song stewart gets one song and the next song is miss grandinko which is stuart copeland's contribution to the album what'd you think i mean it's okay yeah it's okay 
Yeah, I actually like it. I enjoy the sound. The lyrics didn't really mean much to me until I started doing a little bit of digging. Do you know the story behind this? No, I don't. Okay, this, this is fascinating. So, so Andy Summers wrote a song about his mother. Stuart Copeland writes a song about his father. But his father is a founding member of the CIA. Like really? legitimately, yeah. Like yeah, in 1947, he is a one of the founding members of the CIA, and he was like he was big time. He was involved in the overthrow of Syria. He was involved in the Iranian coup d'état, and he was big time. I mean, he's written multiple books, and and just listening to this, you know, some of the things this guy has said, I kind of want to go read his books. Here's a quote: <laughs> My complaint has been that the CIA isn't overthrowing enough anti-American governments <laughs> or assassinating enough anti-American leaders, but I guess I'm getting old. <laughs> uh, I can see school. like maybe why this guy's kid and Sting didn't get along real well, you know? <laughs> didn't see eye to eye politically. Right. Yeah, so this song, this song is about this policy meeting of these government officials and I think is a, a throwback to Stuart Copeland's dad and his days in the CIA. Nice. That is a cool story. I'd never heard that before. <laughs> yeah. I do know that Sting could barely bring himself to do the vocals on this song. Yeah. He agreed to do two takes. That's it. <laughs> yeah. I'm only seeing this stupid song two times and they, I guess they got it. So. Yeah. Him and Don Amici. You got one chance on this. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Don Amici, throwback to the Trading Places episode. All right, before we move on to the next song, for the record, so yes. far, we've had Synchronicity 1, Walking in Your Footsteps, Oh My God, Mother, and Miss Gridenko. Yes. Not stellar so far. Okay. If, if these were the only songs on the album, yeah, you've got, you've got a hard album to argue is a masterpiece. But giving what follows... Yeah, I'm not going to have okay. a hard time. Buckle your seatbelts because here we go. <laughs> All right. Synchronicity 2. This song is amazing. Oh, it's so good. It, it is, is so, so good. good. All respects. The music is on point and the lyrics so synchronicity one describes the concept of synchronicity and then synchronicity two gives you an example of synchronicity it is the story of a man in daily anguish of being my whole life has have to yeah, my, yes. Uh, yes. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so he's in this daily anguish of being his mother screaming at the wall. His wife is complaining about boredom and frustrations, but all her suicides are fake. And every meeting he has at work is a kick in the crotch. <laughs> I love that line. Not just yeah. a kick in the crotch, a humiliating kick in the crotch. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then meanwhile, the other story, meanwhile, a monster in Loch Ness moves toward the surface of the deep. This is the example. These are parallel events that are seemingly completely unrelated, but are symbolically connected because the man's paranoia and psychosis ebbs closer and closer to the edge in the same way that the monster moves closer and closer to the surface of the water 
it's outstanding amazing incredible i don't know i i, I don't know what else to say about this i love it i wasn't a fan yeah. of it before it but like yeah. this is a song that i'm adding to my regular playlist and we'll listen to and rock out when it comes on this is yeah this is one that'll give me legs if i'm on my run for sure yeah Have you have you seen the video of this? Yeah, the video is the band playing on piles of like broken instruments, kind of a dystopian looking thing. And then when they th- throw the chorus, it's like these shots of Nessie. <laughs> it, it's, it's an interesting video. It's very 80s. It made me think of like a cheap version of the stacks from Ready Player One, right? It's oh, nice. Yeah. Apocalyptic. Yeah. Stacks of junk and. And while you, since you said it, a shout out to all our Gunter fans out there. We love you. Oh yeah, definitely our, our, our RPO guys. Nice. But love the song. Love the song. Time to okay. push the stop button. Eject. Flip the tape over. Flip it over. Here we go. Side two. played as much as this song is played and you've heard it as much as you've heard it and when it comes on the radio you still turn up the volume that's a pretty freaking amazing song it's an amazing song it's an amazing song and you're right for for those of you who are so familiar with this song you can't truly appreciate it everybody take a deep breath take a step back take a fresh look at this song because it's amazing it really is In May of 2019, BMI recognized this song as the most played song in radio history at 15 million radio plays. And it overtook, you've lost that love and feeling. (laughs) Oh my God. Top Gun. Top Gun's Go ahead. Yeah, we'll see where where it falls. You either already heard it in Top Gun or you're going to hear it pretty soon. We don't know yet. (laughs) So this is their signature song, right? I mean, it won Grammy for Song of the Year. It has, as you mentioned, been played on the radio more than any other song. And from what I understand, it's estimated to be about a quarter to a third of Sting's musical income. And for a guy who's put out as many hits as he has, that's saying something. It's incredible. In 2003, obviously that's a long time ago, but in 2003, Sting was still making $2,000 a day on the oh royalties of this song. Oh my gosh, that's insane. That is insane. <laughs> that is a sweet gig right there. Collect so, royalty checks. This is the one. This is the one that was written at Ian Fleming's writing desk. Sting had separated from his wife, Frances Tomty, and started dating their neighbor and her best friend, Trudy Styler, who he eventually married. And he woke up in the middle of the night with the lyrics in his head, every breath you take, every move you make, went, sat at the piano, put that tune to it, wrote it in half an hour. Wrote it in half an hour and 20 years later was still making $2,000 a day. It's incredible. It's incredible. I heard him comment on the, on the tone of this song. Yeah. He said it's sinister but seductively dressed. So it's weird, you know, a lot of people thought that this was like a 
a happy, peppy, upbeat song. And he was just kind of floored by this idea because to him, this was this kind of stalker-esque. Right. People played yeah. it at their weddings and stuff. That's weird. Yeah, that's that's strange. Just never, ever has it seemed to me to be an upbeat song. It has always been this kind of notion of... I'm standing in the bushes and I'm observing everything that you do. You know, what's interesting about this song in Sting's first solo album, he has a song called, if you love somebody set them free. Yeah. It was written in response to this song because so many people played this song at their wedding that he was like, (laughs) I got to make this right. I got to give them an actual love song. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. People would tell him, "Ah, I played that at my wedding. And he he said, well, Good, Good luck. luck. With that. Yeah. <laughs> that is that is awesome. Listening to Sting, he said as soon as he wrote it, he knew it was the best thing that the police would ever make. So despite the fact that Stuart Copeland is still making <laughs> lots of money off of this album, he still hates the arrangement of this song. I know. That's so crazy. This, this was the one that they came to actual physical blows in the studio. This was the one that Pageant was like, I am out of here. I cannot <laughs> handle this, these guys anymore. By the way, little note right in the middle of the song, little piano key, one key right in the middle of the song. That was Hugh Pageant's contribution to this song. And that's maybe my favorite part of the whole song. Just subtle and beautiful in its simplicity. It's, it, it's incredible. Is this the hi-hat story? Because we've got yes. a hi-hat story. Yeah, so obviously, you know, they put this song together. And as we've mentioned, Sting had the arrangement. Like, he had the demoed out. He knew how he wanted it. And they put the song, and he he basically said, I'm not going to I'm not gonna do this any way other than the way that I want to do it. That's it. You know, the drums are going to be this, and the guitar is going to be this, and that is it. And so they recorded it, and the next day, when the rest of the guys weren't in the studio, Stuart Copeland came in to Hugh Padgham and said, hey, I think we need to put a hi-hat in here. And, of course, Hugh is just the guy who just wants people to get along, so he's like, Okay. And he puts the high pad in. And then the next day, Sting comes in and he's like, all right, let's listen to Every Breath You Take. And he's like, what is that effing hi-hat doing in the song? <laughs> Take it out. <laughs> Love that. Wow. So, and then the video. I mean, everybody has got to know the video. This was the one that MTV wouldn't stop playing. And these guys were the, they were the darling stars for MTV for that summer. And this video was on all the time and i watched it every time it came on i never got tired of seeing that ashtray in black and white yeah it's it's very noir yeah it's actually based on a 1944 film called jam the blues and i think that's why in the song sting is playing the stand-up bass and him playing that just gave them this sort of air of sophistication that nobody else on MTV. I mean, just think about, think about the music videos that were out on MTV at this time. You got Def Leppard <laughs> blowing up phallic guitars and setting trees on fire. And here's this video where they're just standing in like very contrasted black and white with this blue tint. And it's all very jazzy. That's right. Nobody playing chess with a wizard in this video. <laughs> i forgot about that oh my gosh throwback to our pyromania episode this was the first single released released may 20th 1983 next song 
king of pain. second single released August of 1983. This one is also about Sting's separation from his wife. This whole second side is really kind of a, you know, people in misery write some pretty good songs. And That's right. Sting, obviously, this wasn't just a, a, an insignificant thing to him. The, the fact that he had left his wife was incredibly painful to him. He, it's obviously big news in the UK and the rest of the world. And so he goes to he goes to the Caribbean to escape and happens I don't know I don't know how you see this with the sun, but apparently actually sees a little black spot on the sun and points it out to Trudy Styler. And he's like, There's a little black spot on the sun today. And then he says, That's my soul up there. Just kind of symbolized his pain. And it is it's sad, yeah. It's it's it, a painful song, but again, unbelievably good yeah it's it's fantastic starts out pretty simple with just those piano chords yeah and and it hooks me right off the bat i mean yeah This reached number one on the mainstream rock chart and number three on the Hot 100. I kind of don't want to. I want to talk about King of Pain more because I just want to be able to listen to it longer. I don't want to. Really, <laughs> it's so good. We should just I get mean, out of the way and play it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The, I mean, just that. Just that first line. There's a little black spot on the sun today. It's the same old thing as yesterday. Is so poetic and beautiful, and I, I just, it's it's amazing. Yeah, I love it too. Is this where we throw in our Weird Al reference? Weird Al has a song parodying King of Pain. It's called King of Suede. (laughs) We love Weird Al. We Uh, love Weird Al. Shout out to Weird Al. Shout out to Weird Al. This is actually Weird Al's third appearance on the uh, Shirley Can't Be Serious podcast. Probably. Yeah. That yes. smells, smells like, Nirvana. like Nirvana and King of Suede. And he did. There we go. Okay. Next song on the album is Wrapped Around Your Finger. Well, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say I think this is also about his breakup with his wife. <laughs> He's going through a rough patch right here. This one, I mean... He's got he's got a lot of stuff going on here. He's got Greek mythology. He's got Faust. He's got Sorcerer's Apprentice, and and it's this. This is kind of the vengeful, like the kind of the the browbeaten husband. I think turn on this because this is a spiteful song. Like it's about turning the tables on someone who has been overbearing on you, and it's got a really kind of dark beginning, but then the end is triumphant you know it's like the tables have turned the video for me caught my eye as a young kid this is the candle video for anybody who doesn't remember this is the i mean if you if i say sting and candles you know what video i'm talking about it's it's really a cool video trick that they do they played the music sped up 
and they would dance and sing to the sped up version. Right. So when they slowed the music down, we as the audience watching this video, it plays normal to us, but everything they're moving is very slow motion and deliberate and mysterious looking. Super cool video. Love yeah. it. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to go through the labyrinth. This is another, this is one that Miss Piggy did. <laughs> the Muppets Take Manhattan. Just <laughs> throw that out there. Miss Piggy did a, did a montage that was very much wrapped around your finger candles. I'll just, you know. For those who don't know, <laughs> the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast loves Weird Al and the Muppets. We really do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wrapped Around Your Finger was the fourth single released. Another mega hit. Great song. Love it. And then the next song that we have is called Tea in the Sahara. This song is inspired by a story in a book by Paul Bowles called The Sheltering Sky. These are the sisters who have, they make an arrangement with the prince that they're going to have tea with him in the Sahara. And they they wait for him and wait for him and he never shows up, but then it's too late for them and they're burned up in the desert. Right. And Sting really loves this song. He's kind of proud of this one. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of it. What'd you think? I still like it. Now, this one's a great, yeah, this one belongs on the B-side with all of the other fantastic songs, in my opinion. It's, the music is subtle and beautiful. What Andy Summers did, does on this one is a really unique, a unique sound to him. Like, I don't know that, I don't know that I've heard any other guitarist doing this. So I had to kind of look it up to see what he was doing, but he's got this technique where he, the, the notes that you're hearing from the guitar are like a delayed effect without hearing the actual notes that are played. And I don't, I don't know a better way to say that, but it's it's just it's very airy kind of sparkly sounding guitar that doesn't sound exactly like a guitar because it's kind of an effect without the actual original note of the guitar playing. It's pretty neat. Hmm. Okay. I, I, I found this quote. Sting said that despite his affection for the song, he's claimed that the track was played too fast. Yeah. He said that. 1980 in 1993, I've always loved the song. There's so much space in it, but I think we played it too fast on the album and live. It's just a song. I, I, I wasn't in love with it. So, well, yeah, but I mean, thinking about the song, would you say it's too fast? No, I would not. No, right. <laughs> Sorry, Sleepy, I don't think yeah. you're right on this one, Sting. I don't, <laughs> this one should not be slowed down. No, uh uh. And then the final, now, some people, hey, if you got the LP on this one, that was the end of the album for you, Tea in the Sahara, and you're like, oh, I guess we're done. But if you got the tape or if you got the CD, you got the final track, which is Murder by Numbers. Once that you've decided on a killing, first you make a stone of your heart. There's a movie starring Sandra Bullock called Murder by Numbers, but it's actually shown in the movie Copycat. They actually the police, it's like how they're going to catch the killer and they post the lyrics on the wall to analyze them. I have not seen either one of those movies. Is Copycat the one that had, what's that singer's name? Harry Connick Jr. Yeah, was he in that one? Yeah, he was the, he was the killer. He was the bad guy. Okay, and so it's like he leaves the lyrics as a clue or something like well, that? Well, he's like the Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> he's like the guy in jail who's helping her find the, the other oh. guy. 
Oh, wow. That does sound a whole lot like Silence of the Lambs. Uh, yeah, it's been a while. So my, my details are a little hazy. But <laughs> okay. Anyway, well, what do you I'll think of the song? I'll watch these two movies later on. How about that? <laughs> Sounds good. So I, I love the song. It is, I think it is fantastic, and it is so jazzy. So what are your thoughts? It's jazzy. I mean, it's a little finger snapping at the coffee shop, little jazzy number. I'd love it. I absolutely love it. So, you know, that we've got all the stories of their animosity and their hate for each other while they're on this island. But this is one where, like, they're all hanging out and having dinner together. And, you know, of course, Andy just has his guitar in his hand because he walks around with the guitar <laughs> all day long. Right. And he starts playing this little jazzy little chord progression, you know, some groovy little jazz chords and Sting's like, oh, hey, I like that. And so then Sting records, you know, the little hand recorder records him, leaves. And while Andy and Stuart are having dessert, Sting takes a walk up the volcano on the island there and writes the song. They come back and then record. You know, they all set up, went to the recording spots, recorded it in one take. That's amazing. It's crazy. You know, it's, like a, they, it's good too. I mean, it's but, catchy. But I mean, if you know the history of the band here, right? So this is something that we didn't go into. But the police, I mean, this is their best album by most standards. This is their pinnacle. And after this album, they were done. Yeah. They, I mean, they they didn't have any swan song. They didn't announce a breakup. It was just this weird evaporation. It's, it's like a disintegration. Yeah, it just it, it's crazy. And so then you know, then you get all of the stories of the fights and the animosity and the power struggles. And as it turns out, for the last song on the last album that they ever do, it's this beautiful coming together where it's it's magical in that it happens in this kind of weird way there's this beautiful walk involved and then they get together and it is perfectly done as a team as a group it's, it's awesome nice nice okay well before we wrap up for me, it, I think it's interesting just to break down the layout of the album. The first side, it's just kind of okay, and then a little bit of terrible mixed in <laughs> until you hit synchronicity two, and then yeah. it, then the album just takes off, man, and it's so good from that point forward. I, yeah. I'm always curious about the song selection, how they choose what's first and third and fifth and i mean they think about these decisions you know i mean they do but from what i've heard on this one they were having to flip a coin to figure out what was going to go on <laughs> and what wasn't and what order they were going to go in yeah and apparently sting lost the flip on whether mother should be burned and not <laughs> there is there is one ugly ugly there's a little black spot on this bright shining sun of an album <laughs> <That's for sure. laughs> But no, the, I, st I still think, and we'll go into more detail on our next episode, but I, I still think Synchronicity 1 is fantastic. It belongs in this album. And I think that obviously Side 2, Synchronicity 2 on is too beautiful to compare to anything else. But but we'll see, you know, because Frontiers is also an incredible album. So next week, join us for that. All right. We'll see you back here next week for when we break down 
Frontiers by Journey. And as always, thank you so much for listening to us. Your comments on Facebook and on Twitter mean so much to us. Your listening to us means so much to us. We're overwhelmed by your support. Please, if you haven't followed us on Facebook yet, please do that. You can find us at Shirley Podcast on Facebook. Shirley Podcast on Twitter. Tell your friends about us. Share our podcast with your friends, or else you'll get a humiliating kick in the crotch from either DNF. <laughs> <laughs> don't forget to like and subscribe. Give us a five-star rating. Honest or dishonest, we don't care. <laughs> D, it's been fun, man. It's been fun. I'll see you next week, Jason. All music images and movie clips are used for the purposes of commentary and education in conjunction with the fair use agreement under the U.S. copyright law.